Good evening, my brothers and sisters. I know that your heart rejoices, as mine does, in the goodness of our Lord, his mercies, and his wonderful grace upon our lives. Tonight, we want to continue to fellowship about this matter of spiritual stewardship. And our focus for this evening has to do with the character of God's work, of God's steward. And uh, we want to read some verses to begin with from 2 Timothy. But before we read, I want to remind us once again of the reality of our time right now. The reality is, and we want it to become something that we know and experience, not just some theory, that our great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign ruler of the universe, desires to speak to you and me. Now when he speaks, he wants to speak from his heart to our heart. Now you can be absolutely sure that there will be nothing wrong with what he says. His speaking from his heart will be perfect. But in order for us to receive what he says, first of all, the Holy Spirit, who was sent here on the day of Pentecost by the Father and by the Son to do this work. Now, there's other works that he does, but our focus tonight is that our Lord Jesus, as our great high priest, from his heart can speak to our heart. So the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead, God himself, has been commissioned with this responsibility to communicate the heart of our Lord to our heart. As we mentioned yesterday, God also has chosen to use human vessels. And so he wants to take a human vessel and use it by the anointing and empowering of the Holy Spirit to speak these words to our hearts. And then, brothers and sisters, every one of us, we have a responsibility. Can we put it this way? We need to be stewards of our hearts tonight. You have, by the grace of God, the ability to have control over your heart. And so we need to take our hearts and put them in a place where they are listening hearts. You remember that the Lord came to Solomon and said to Solomon, you ask what you want, I'll give it to you. Now, you, took, you know the Lord took a great risk in doing that. But you remember Solomon's request? Sometimes the translations say that he asked for wisdom. But brothers and sisters, what he asked for was a listening heart, a heart to be able to hear God's voice to him. Brothers and sisters, we can be absolutely sure that God the Son and God the Holy Spirit 
will be perfectly faithful to us. So let's trust him tonight so that he can do this great work that's in his heart to do. Brothers and sisters, I don't know. I, don't want, I want to be very careful. But it seems to me there's only one work that our Lord is doing. I will build my church. And so, brothers and sisters, we are here as members of this church, members of his body. But he wants to continue this building work. And even in the assemblies where you and I gather, he wants to do something in us that will allow him to do in a fuller way what's in heart for our assemblies. Do you know what his heart is for the assemblies where we meet? The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Brothers and sisters, not just in meetings, but in all of our life as assemblies. It's the heart of our Lord to be able to impart a fuller measure of his fullness to our lives together. And so tonight, I believe, along with the other times we have had, the Lord has gathered us here to speak a word to us, a living word, not just some information, but a word that has life in it, and life that, a life that can be communicated from himself to us. And we know that if this can happen, then our Lord will be able to do a further building work among us as his people. So let's put ourselves in a place where our hearts are listening for what the Holy Spirit is seeking to speak to us. So can I encourage us to join our hearts together and put ourselves in a place where the Lord can speak to us. Let's pray together. Blessed Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for all that you have already spoken to our hearts. Lord, many of us could go home this afternoon and say, Lord, it's been wonderful, it's been good. But Lord, there seems to be something more that's in your heart that you want to do. And we want to be before you tonight in such a way that we can, be, we can fully cooperate with you, that we won't in any way interfere or prevent you from doing what is in your heart. So blessed Lord, we thank you for your great sovereign love that causes you to desire to speak living words to our hearts tonight. Lord, we know that in many ways we should be disqualified because you have spoken so many times before and many times we haven't listened carefully and, and also we haven't obeyed what you've said. But we want that to change tonight, Lord. We humble ourselves before you and say to you, Lord Jesus, we want to hear your voice to us. And we promise you that by your grace, by your helping us, we will seek to obey whatever it is that you speak to us. Thank you again for your great love to us. And we put ourselves now under that anointing of your Holy Spirit that he can speak we can hear, and you can do your work. And we ask it in your name. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We want to read first of all in verse 15. 
You will remember that Paul is writing this, which many people think is his final letter, his final correspondence. And he writes it to one of his co-workers, Timothy. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And then also in verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And then in chapter 3, beginning to read in verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, we see here, I believe, my brothers and sisters, another way of understanding what a steward is. The language that Paul uses here in these verses, first of all, that we are to be a workman. Now, dear brothers and sisters, I want to just underline the encouragement that we have received from our brother Stephen and our brother Dana, that every one of us, that the moment we respond to God's drawing love, and we come to have faith in his son. At that very moment, we have been called to be stewards. Now, we're probably not aware of that, and this is probably not the issue that is uppermost in our mind. But if from God's perspective, this is involved in this call, not just to have our sins forgiven, not just to receive new life, and experience in a fuller measure the victory of Calvary. But as we said yesterday, oh, my dear brothers and sisters, that God would take us as disqualified as we were and are and still want to do a work in us where we can be his stewards, the stewards of the mystery, the stewards of his grace, the stewards of his love, the stewards of his life. And so, here Paul uses this, this language, a workman, an unashamed workman. This is what our Lord wants for every one of us. And please know, there has been a full, overflowing, adequate provision for you to do this. He also says that we are to be a vessel for honor. Brothers and sisters, the calling that you and I have received is such a great calling. And uh, we can't spend time tonight going into it, but brothers and sisters, the greatest honor that could ever be bestowed upon you has already been bestowed upon you. That God wants you and me to be vessels of honor that he can use, useful to the master, prepared, adequate. And so again, 
This is, to me, another way of seeing what it means to be a steward. I know, as our brothers have been sharing with us, we see there's a, a dimension, an aspect to this. But brothers and sisters, please see that this is also another way that we can come to understand what it means to be a steward. And then he mentions there in the chapter 3 that <clears throat> so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, I know he's talking to Timothy, but brothers and sisters, <laughs> we need to be careful that we don't just take uh, the word, for instance, the man of God. What about the woman of God? Because we have this tendency to categorize certain people as having some special place in this matter of being stewards of God. And so, we need to see ourselves as men and women apprehended by our God, apprehended by our Lord, because there is a work that has been in the depths of his heart from eternity past that he is now doing, has been doing, and continues to do and will continue to do until it is completed and perfected. But the amazing, amazing thing to me, brothers and sisters, is that he would choose the likes of us. Please forgive me. I don't mean to offend you. But none of us in and of ourselves, was qualified in any way to be given this kind of responsibility this position in the work of God. Because we know, my brothers and sisters, this work of building the church, only our Lord Jesus can do this work. I will build my church. And brothers and sisters, for him to take the likes of us, totally disqualified in every sense of the word, and do a work in us, and qualify us, and then put responsibility in our hands, and then to give us the grace to fulfill that responsibility. It's amazing. It, it's almost so wonderful, you almost can't believe it. I mean, I have trouble sometimes believing that this is God's way. Because you know, dear brothers and sisters, many of us believe that the reason why God chose us is because we had these innate abilities, these wonderful gifts that he could use in building his church. Now, I just want to point out one thing. I want us to see what has happened when men have tried to do it with their own innate abilities. Now, I've been living in Brazil for a number of years now, and I should have learned how to speak Portuguese very well, but I am an utter failure at this matter. But there are some words in Portuguese that have, uh, they're precious to me. I like the sound, like the word paracatu, okay? Planetucci. Uh, and then there's this word bagunça. Now, the Portuguese-speaking people, they know what that means. It means a mess. And I don't know of a better word in any language to describe what we have done with the church of our Lord Jesus Christ than the word bagunça. It's a big mess. In Brazil, we have 3,000 denominations. 
I don't know how many there are in the United States. But you know why we have this situation? Because men with their own innate abilities thought they could do this work that only our Lord Jesus can do. I will build my church. And so, brothers and sisters, it's amazing to me that he would take the likes of us. I'm sorry, I have to include you too. I'm at the top of the list, but I have to include you too. That he would take the likes of us and choose us as a raw material and then choose us as the co-workers and prepare us, make us adequate, prepared for this good work of building the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, may God help us not to have to wait until the end, until we see the glory, the honor of this great calling, to be a part of this great work of building God's masterpiece, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, which will become the bride of the Son of God. Now, last evening, what our heart was is to focus on five characteristics of a steward, five qualities of a steward. And brothers and sisters, I, I feel so badly because <laughs> there is so much that needs to be said about this matter of being stewards. And I'm not sure that the, the ones that I mentioned are even the most important ones, but they're the ones that was in my heart. That first of all, as a steward, you have to be devoted to your master. You have to love him with your whole heart. If you don't, it will result in you not being a good steward. And please remember what our brothers have said. You are a steward. That's not the issue. The issue is what kind of a steward are we? Are we a good and faithful and prudent steward? Or are we a lazy, evil steward, as our Lord called them in Matthew 25? That's the issue. And the number one issue in that matter is whether or not you are in love with your master. So much in love with him that your whole life is focused in doing the things that please him. So brothers and sisters, this is something that everyone, this is not for a special few people. This is what is necessary for every one of us to end up being good stewards, faithful stewards, prudent stewards, that we have to be in love. We have to be hopelessly devoted to our Lord and give ourselves without reservation, to surrender ourselves 100%, total surrender. But my dear brother, I ask us again, what is so wrong with that? Why is it so difficult for some of us? to make that kind of a decision. Is he such a bad master? Is he so difficult to work for? No, my brothers and sisters. You'll never find anybody like him to be your master. He loves you perfectly. He wants nothing but the absolute best for you. He will be merciful to you. He will give you abundant grace. He'll be so patient. He won't criticize you, even when you deserve to be criticized. He won't disqualify you even when you do things to be disqualified. He'll find a way. He's such a wonderful master. Why do we hesitate?
to give ourselves hopelessly to him. Hell, just surrender fully. If you haven't done that, my dear brother and sister, I plead with you tonight. Don't sleep until you do. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. He will give you grace. He will give you the courage. He'll even give you the words to say. But don't let another day pass until you have come to grips with this matter that you want to become a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, a love slave, someone who serves him because you love him, not because you're afraid not to or have some other reason, but because you love him. Motivated. What do you want? You want to please him. You want to know him. You want to know his heart. You want to know what's important to him. And so these are the things that, that motivate us, that cause us to push on. Illuminated. Oh, brothers and sisters, this man, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle, you know from your own reading that this man's life was totally turned around in that event recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. I hope you have given some thought and consideration to this. This man, Saul of Tarsus, was totally determined to destroy the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was hostile. He was antagonistic. He was throwing people into prison. He even stood by and agreed with the stoning of Stephen. This is that same man. But brothers and sisters, when he saw the risen Christ, when the risen Christ apprehended him on the road to Damascus, Oh, brothers and sisters, something got burned into his heart. We know that even his eyes, the light was brighter than the sun at noonday. And he was struck to the ground. But from that initial revelation, because, we'll talk about hopefully tonight, because he was obedient from the first day. Do you know when he took him into Damascus? It says, and immediately he began to preach Jesus. He didn't even wait to go out into the desert. He did that later. But when he was in Damascus, immediately. And you remember when the Lord is telling the parable in Matthew 25 about the one who had the five and the three and the one talent? You remember what he said about the, first, the, the one who had the five and one had the three? When they received the talent, what did they do? Immediately. Sometimes some of us have procrastinated and postponed. And <laughs> I used to have an, a, a boss in the supermarket when I was a teenager in high school. And he used to walk around because we were those responsible for putting groceries on the shelves. And his name was George Wardian. And I don't, I don't remember many people's names, but I remember this man. Because he would walk around every aisle talking to these young people. Don't dilly-dally or procrastinate, he would say. Don't dilly-dally. Well, some of us have dilly-dallied around and procrastinated so long that we have lost the sense of what was happening in our heart in the very beginning. Brothers and sisters, we see in the life of Paul. He didn't do that. Immediately, he responded. And he could say in Acts 19, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to that heavenly vision. 
brothers and sisters, this ought to be our testimony as well, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Illuminated, educated, and related. Brothers and sisters, we all come into this matter of being stewards on the same level. We're all in kindergarten to begin with. It's a good place to be. It's a good place to learn some very valuable lessons, to be humble and dependent and looking always to him. And so if you happen to be in that stage, rejoice in it, brother and sister. If you're just in the beginning stage, maybe you have never even made this initial step. Maybe you didn't understand that part of your calling was to be a steward. And maybe all many for many years you've been going around just thinking, oh, hallelujah, I've been sick, my sins have been forgiven, I'm not going to hell, and I'm going to heaven. Hallelujah. Well, that's wonderful. But what are you going to do when you stand before him? You're just going to sing hallelujah? I hope not, my brothers and sisters. I hope you have something that you can present to him, and he can say to you, you've been well, you, well done. Because you have responded to his hand of education upon your life. He has educated you in the sense of knowing how to serve him in a way that's pleasing to him. Dear brother and sister, there is not a one of us in this place tonight who cannot be in this place of being educated by our Lord. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means to be a learner. Someone who comes under the, hand, the educating hand of his master. And then finally related, and we're going to talk some more about this tonight, if the Lord permits. We need to have relationships with each other. This is part of being a steward. It's for us to learn to appreciate and to treasure and to build strong, long-lasting May I even say eternal relationships? But don't wait until then. We can start now. As I mentioned to us last night, it's in the 16th chapter of the book of Romans, 35 names of people that Paul wanted to greet and some who were there with him who wanted to send greetings also. 35 names. Not just in jail. Oh, God bless everybody. Wonderful. Let's tell everybody I said hello. No, brothers and sisters. And so what it says to me is, this was a man who understood and deeply appreciated the people that God brought into his life, and he spent the time and took the grace to build relationships with them. So much so that he referred to some of them as his beloved. Brothers and sisters, I'm sorry I have to say it this way, but... In experience, we don't become beloved just because we meet each other one time. It means we've spent some time together. We've gone through, through some difficulties here. We have cried with one another. We have laughed with one another. And it's in this kind of a context that we become beloved to each other. Well, tonight I want to share five things. And what I want to do, my brothers and sisters, is try to point us in the direction of seeing the attitudes that permitted Paul to become this vessel of honor, to become a faithful, prudent steward. Now, I'm sure if you will read his letters, you will find many, many other things 
But I'm just going to try to share with us the things that came to my heart. And I feel like that the Lord wants me to try to share them with you. So they're just statements that Paul made. But I think they reveal an attitude in his heart that somehow made it possible for the Holy Spirit to work in him and produce the kind of steward that he became. So I want to mention them to you first, and then we'll go back and look at them one by one. You remember when our Lord Jesus encountered Saul on the road to Damascus? There he was laying on the ground, and he asked two questions. Lord, who are you? Now, brothers and sisters, when you stop to think about what he said, first of all, he was clear. The one who had spoken to him Henry, and this bright light, he had to be somebody with great power and authority. And so what did Paul call him? Who are you? No, Lord, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. And then the second question that Paul asked. And this is the one that I think reveals his heart in a wonderful, wonderful way. You know what he said? What shall I do, Lord? Secondly, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, you don't need to look there right now. But Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. This reveals his attitude about the work that God did in and through him. And then in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is another unveiling of this man's heart that somehow sent a signal to the Holy Spirit that he could come and do a deep work in this man. And then he says, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10, I endure all things. And then finally, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13, he says, not finding Titus, my brother. So we want to go back now and look at these statements made by Paul. But let's keep our focus, brothers and sisters. What we're trying to discover is the attitude in this man that allowed the Lord Jesus Christ to produce in him a steward that our Lord can put before us and say, this is what I'm trying to do in your life. And brothers and sisters, can I remind us tonight, if he could do it for Paul, guess what? Guess what? He can do it for you. He's not, he, he, he doesn't show partiality. Brother and sister, he will not do one thing for Paul he will not do for you. The same resources that were available that produced Paul the Apostle, those same resources are abundantly available to you. So you know what that means? No excuses, brothers and sisters. No excuses. So we want to encourage each other to come and discover in experience something of what Paul discovered. Because, you know, he, the Lord used him as a, as he said in one place, he used me as an example 
of how he can take someone who's his enemy, who's antagonistic, who's, who's working against him, and by his great sovereign love, he can apprehend him and transform his life and do such a work in him that he becomes an example for all of us, not to in any way magnify Paul, but to magnify the Lord that he had come to know and surrendered his life to. So let's go back. First of all, his response, Lord, or what shall I do, Lord? Some translations say, Lord, what shall I do? But you know that this, it's saying the same thing. So in 2 Corinthians in chapter 9, I think Paul states this again in another way. Verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. This is what I see was happening when this Saul of Tarsus was encountered by the sovereign ruler, our Lord Jesus Christ. When he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What's my next step? He's simply saying, my ambition, the most important thing, the thing that I am most ambitious about is to do things that bring pleasure to him, that please him. And brothers and sisters, please, we cannot say that we love our Lord Jesus and still are not interested in the things that please him. And so please understand that what I believe Paul was doing on this occasion was he somehow understood in the depths of his heart that this one whom he was encountering and was encountering him was none other than the sovereign Lord. Brothers and sisters, he would not call him Lord. Paul was, he knew what he was saying. He called this man Lord because he understood, uh, this, this one who was speaking to him, he understood that he was the sovereign Lord. And what Paul was doing? In essence, he was saying, I surrender my will totally to you. I submit myself completely to your authority. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to ask us, what excuses can we make not to do this? You know that somebody is your Lord, or something maybe, but something in your life has a domination over you. And the question is, who or what is it? And there's only one in this universe who is to be in that position. Our Heavenly Father. Not because he pulled any strings, but because he's the only one qualified. Our Heavenly Father took him and placed him far above all principalities and powers. He placed him in his own right hand. He gave him the name that is above every other name. And brothers and sisters, there is coming a day when every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Brothers and sisters, we don't have to wait until then. We can do it now. And this is what Paul did. And his, the attitude of his heart was, this is the Lord, and I am going to bow my knee. I am going to gladly bow my knee. And not just let it be words, but something that's in my heart, that I surrender to his sovereignty. I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we do, brothers and sisters, we experience a salvation. You know what kind of salvation? We are saved from being our own tyrant ruler. And this is a great deliverance. It's a great salvation to be set free from that tyrant that you were born who's living inside of you. When you were born, he came to live inside of you. Now, because Jesus has been made Lord, and you confess him to be Lord, you surrender your will to him. And that means, Lord, what shall I do next? It means that you are willing to surrender your will, and you're learning to, you're willing to learn the lesson of how to obey him. You know, my dear brothers and sisters, the words are empty, meaningless. If you say, Lord, and you have no intention of obeying him. You remember in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. But you see, my dear brothers and sisters, some unfortunate things have happened among us. In our songs, in our conversations, in our talking about him, we call him Lord without the understanding that that means that we want to obey him. It's just a nice title that we've given him. But brothers and sisters, you know who is a loser when we do that? It doesn't change who he is. It doesn't change him one bit. But what does it do? It brings us into a deception of using the word, and the reality is not there. Oh, may the Lord deliver us. May the Holy Spirit take this word, Lord, and fill it with the meaning that's supposed to be there. And then for you and I to appropriately respond to what it means. He is our <laughs> sovereign. There's a word. Of, he's our despot. He is the one who is to be in absolute control of everything that's going on in our life. Why? Because God has given him this position. Right now, for the last 2,000 years, my dear brothers and sisters, there's been a man, a unique man, but nonetheless a man, seated in the highest position in the universe. All authority, all power, all, has been, all of this has been given. He is the ruler, the sovereign ruler. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that happens in this universe that he's not the Lord over. He's even the Lord over things, the stupid things we do. He permits us to do it, even though it's not his will. He's still the Lord. So the question is, is he our Lord? Is he your Lord? Is he my Lord? Not just something that happened many, but today, tonight. Is this a reality? Have you said something like what Paul said? 
Lord, where do I go from here? What's my next step? My life belongs to you. I fully surrender. What are you asking of me next? And then day by day, having this attitude of heart, Lord, my ambition is to live in such a way and do the things that pleases you. Secondly, and this is so wonderful, my brothers and sisters, I just feel like I want to worship tonight when I hear what this man said in 1 Corinthians 15. That's why I wanted us to sing this song tonight. Come thy fount of every blessing. Here I raise mine Ebenezer. Oh, to grace how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wondering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And you know what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10? By the grace of God, I am what I am. Brothers and sisters, this needs to become very, very, very clear to us. You will never, ever, ever become a faithful, prudent steward unless you discover the amazing grace of God. If you think you can pull it off on your own with your own native abilities, you're headed for disaster. You're headed to, your head is going to run into a brick wall. You're going to fall flat on your face. And the sooner you learn this, my dear young brothers and sisters, I plead with you tonight. Cry out to your God. Please open my eyes to see this amazing grace that Paul says, by the grace of God. Let's read this first. 1 Corinthians 15. Because it's not just what he is. Let's notice what he says. Verse 15, chapter 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. More, uh, did not prove vain, but I labored more, even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So brothers and sisters, this man discovered early in his life with our Lord, in his desire to do his Lord's will. He discovered, and I'm sure they were very expensive lessons. I think he discovered this matter about the grace of God when he fell on his face and felt like a total failure. And all he could do was cry. Tears of failure. And it was there that he discovered what the amazing grace of God. Brothers and sisters, please, please, please. Let's not see God's grace as something. It's none other than the living Christ coming and imparting himself to us. His grace is not some commodity that you can go to the supermarket or the department store and purchase. It's personal. Our Lord Jesus is the one who is full of grace. And of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So even when we make this commitment that we want to do the will of our master, we have to discover that even though we have the desire to do it, we 
can't pull it off by ourselves. That our Lord Jesus himself has to, by his indwelling presence, impart to us what it is we need in order to fulfill that responsibility. So, dear brothers and sisters, please, if you haven't done much thinking, you haven't considered seriously this matter of the grace of God, don't let many days go by until you get your good concordance and get your Bible out and find the places where the grace of God is mentioned and trust the Holy Spirit to open your eyes. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1 for just a moment. Ephesians chapter 1. Now we've already mentioned what John says in John chapter 1 about our Lord Jesus being full of grace and truth and our receiving of his fullness. Let's start in uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 6. You know here Paul mentions, in my estimation, seven blessings that God has blessed us with in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen one, to what they are. Verse 6, not all of them. To, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And what did he do with this grace, brothers and sisters? What did he do? He freely bestowed it Upon us. Then look in verse 8. Um, let's, oh, let's do verse 7 too. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And what did he do with the riches of his grace? You notice in verse 6, what did he do with his grace? He freely bestowed it upon it. But now when you come to verse 8, what has he done? Paul says he has taken the absolute best he has. He didn't take the leftovers. Do you see this, my brothers and sisters? God took the absolute best he had. And who is that? His own son. And what has he done with the riches of his grace? What does your translation say? What has he done with the riches of his grace? <laughs> yeah, but what, how did he, how did he give the grace? My translation says he lavished his grace out upon him. What does your translation say? Abounded. Huh? It's not quite as good as lavish. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, you know the problem with some of us is we don't have a clear understanding about this matter of God's grace and how he dispenses this grace. Because some of us think that God dispenses his grace with an eyedropper. You know an eyedropper? You know you have a problem with your eyes and you go to the pharmacy and you buy a thing and it has a little thing with a rubber thing on top and you squeeze it very carefully and one or two drops come into your eye. Some of us think that's the way God dispenses his grace. Just a little bit. And he even says to the angel, when he gently squeezes, now you go and make sure he gets on the target. <laughs> Don't want to waste any of this grace. <laughs> oh, my dear, dear brothers and sisters. You know what he's done with it? He's lavished it. He took the whole container and poured it out on top of us. Do you know the reality of this? So that when you consider and seriously face this responsibility of being a steward, a faithful, prudent, good steward. You need to know 
that one of the most important things you have to do is you need to know that you need the grace of God to do it. And we have to learn. We have to learn how to humble ourselves. To whom does God give the grace, according to 1 Peter? To those who humble themselves. He gives grace to the humble. But you know why we don't receive more grace? We are, please forgive my southern English, but we are so cotton-picking proud we, don't, we feel like we can do it without him. We think that we are sufficient in ourselves. And as we mentioned last night about this Saul of Tarsus who became Paul the Apostle, even toward the end of his life, after he had gone through that whole list in 2 Corinthians 11. Now, brother and sister, I don't know what you thought about when you went through, when we read through that list last night. My brother Homeo and I were talking this afternoon and we were talking about some of the experiences that we have had when we go to visit brothers and sisters in different places and some of the beds that we've had to sleep in and I was complaining about one time going and all they had was a piece of plywood with a sheet on it and I had to sleep on that bed and uh, he reminded me of 2 Corinthians 11 brothers and sisters I've never come close even one of those things. He knew the grace of God. He knew how sufficient it was, how to get him through that, but there was still another area in his life. And so God, <laughs> uh, brothers and sisters, I'm sorry, but he employed Satan. Can you believe? Satan had no idea what he was doing, but he was fulfilling a very important work in the life of one of God's stewards. And he went there and he gave what Paul described as thorn in the flesh, this fence post that was driven into his side. And I believe this dear brother felt like, Lord, if you don't remove this thing, I can't go on. I can't serve you. I can't fulfill my mission. And so he went to the Lord. He didn't just ask. He begged. He implored the Lord. Lord, knowing Paul as he did, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, the temptation, the danger was he get a big head and begin to think of himself as somebody really important. And so the Lord, in his great wisdom, knew exactly what this man needed. And he allowed the enemy to come and drive this stake into his side and put him in a place where he felt like Lord, I can't go on. But you know, I think when we talk to him, when we sit down with him in the age to come and have conversation, he'll share this experience with us and say, you know, the Lord was so merciful to me. I didn't think I could make it through. I think he, I felt like he had to remove this thing before I could ever make any progress. But I, just, I learned a lesson, even at the end, with my hair gray and all the other things happening, I learned a valuable lesson. And that is that when I'm weak, then he is strong. That his strength is made perfect in my weakness. I say it again to us tonight, brothers and sisters. God's problem is not your weaknesses. The thing that hinders him the most is your strengths. You're being strong in yourself, and you don't need him. You think you can make it through without him. 
And when you had a man like this who had this tremendous vision, he said, I saw things unlawful for men to talk about. I was taken up into the third heaven. <laughs> Let me ask you, if the Lord gave you this experience, what would you do? Start a Bible school. Write a book. At least you go on a tour telling everybody. Oh, brothers and sisters, flesh, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And God has to deal with it. And this man, Saul of Tarsus, had a lot of it. And it was strong. And God had the necessary way of helping this man get free of this stronghold in his life. And I want to say to myself and to you, dear brothers and sisters, tonight, if you, if you take the first step, if you surrender completely to him, and you say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And that means you are yielding your will to him. I guarantee you, he and his great love for you will arrange or permit circumstances in your life that will give you the opportunity to have these strongholds destroyed. It'd be almost like you take a, a drill and drill a hole and then put a stick of dynamite in that stronghold and blow it up. So by the grace of God, I am what I am. I hope that's your testimony too. It is whether, if you've made any progress at all, if there's been any matter of learning how to be a better steward, I can tell you it's by the grace of God, not because you're such a great person. But it, the attitude of Paul was, because the Lord took this man through the experiences necessary to come to this conclusion in Romans chapter 7, I know, and that's a strong I know, I know that in me, in my flesh, there is what? No good thing. Brothers and sisters, if this man can say it, I certainly can say it. Maybe you can say it too. But you know, it takes some of us a long, long time to come to that point. Because some of us believe that God did himself a great big favor when he saved us. He got such a choice person, so wonderful. And all of that has to come to a total collapse. So if you have made this initial step, I just want to let you know you have a wonderful journey ahead of you. And the Lord will be utterly faithful. But my dear, dear brothers and sisters, most of us, I can't say all, but most of us only learn this lesson laying flat on our face, having cried till we cannot cry anymore. Thirdly, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. You see, Paul was clear. The Holy Spirit helped Paul to understand that in the gospel, in the truth of the gospel, as our brother was talking about this morning, this matter of the mystery of the gospel, the secret of the gospel, of what happens when we believe the gospel. The truth comes in and begins a wonderful work of transformation. 
Yes, it includes, wonderfully includes, the fact that we are now justified. Oh, brothers and sisters, isn't it marvelous, isn't it magnificent that you and I can come tonight and stand before this holy God and he can't find anything wrong with us. He doesn't just say you're forgiven. He says you've never sinned. Can you believe? <laughs> now, we know different, but when our heavenly Father looks at the blood of his Son, there's no more record. No more record. Hallelujah is right, brother and sister. So Paul knew in the depths of his being the transforming power of the gospel. He knew it for himself. And that's why he had the liberty to go and to proclaim it and say, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. Now, you know, this man was a well-educated man. I don't know what he would have the equivalent of today. I'm sure at least one PhD, if, at least, if maybe not two. He was a highly educated man. Probably educated in philosophy and all these other things. But you know what he said? <laughs> he didn't say, I'm not ashamed of philosophy. He said, I'm not ashamed of this simple gospel. Can I share an encouragement to my young brothers and sisters tonight. Some of you who are still in school or headed out to college or something, you're going to encounter in, this, in these classrooms some teaching that's going to contra seek to contradict the simple gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What I trust that you will do is that you will allow your attitude to be such that you are not ashamed of this gospel. Now, some of you know that if you're in a philosophy class and you try to explain to them your philosophy, the philosophy of the gospel, they'll laugh you out of the classroom. They think you lost your mind. But here this man had this, he knew, and it became something that was deep in his heart. That's why, brothers and sisters, he says in Romans chapter I fully preach the gospel in Romans 15. From the day he came to know the Lord Jesus, this man was possessed, if I can put it that way. He was obsessed with proclaiming this gospel because he was convinced that it was the power of God can transform people's lives. Now, Brothers and sisters, please, not just the gospel of forgiveness, but this gospel that results in a transformation of people's character. This gospel that results in the Lord Jesus building his church. Don't you find it interesting, unusual, that Paul would write to the, to the Romans and say, I am eager to preach the gospel to you is he saying they weren't saved? They need to become saved, therefore he had to go there and preach the gospel? No, brothers and sisters, because his gospel was a comprehensive gospel. And it was a gospel that had to do not just with the forgiveness of sin and us becoming children of God, but the gospel that included the building of the church. So, brothers and sisters, I think it would be a wonderful, wonderful thing 
if you and I could come to the same conclusion. Not just because he did, but because the Holy Spirit makes real to you the transforming power of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I don't know much about other religions. I took a class, but sorry, it didn't take, okay, on comparative religions. I don't know much about it, but I don't believe that any other so-called religion makes this kind of provision. That it is the power of God unto salvation. And this salvation means that God will take you from the deepest ditch and take you to the highest heaven. Fully qualified to be there and to reign with his son forever and ever. This is what this gospel will do. So brothers and sisters, in this gospel, in addition to this matter of being justified, you remember what Paul said to the Corinthians in chapter 2 of his first Corinthian letter. He said, when I was among you, I was determined. This is another way of him saying, I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Brothers and sisters, if you are in a place of somehow communicating, and you, communicating the gospel, and we need to be in one way or another. Brothers and sisters, we need to know that our gospel needs to be centered in a person. And what happened to that person? What work he accomplished? There is no other name. There is no other way. The Almighty God has provided a way to transform people's lives. Not just to have them forgiven. Not just to be free of some bad habits. But a transformation that results in you and me being conformed to the image of his son. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. And this is the gospel that Paul preached. Christ and him crucified. Christ crucified. The wisdom of God. The power of God. And so we find in his letters, in Paul's letters, uh, some wonderful things about this gospel, and we can only mention a couple of them. But you know, my brothers and sisters, that after you're forgiven, you still have a couple of problems, right? And the major problem is, how do I stop sinning? This is not a problem for you. But you remember what John says in his epistle, my little children. I write these things unto you that you may not sin. Now, please, the Holy Spirit would not say that if it were not possible. There is a way. <laughs> I have to admit, it's a very unusual way. Because, my brothers and sisters, there's only one kind of sinner who doesn't sin. You know what kind? A dead one. And guess what our God has done? Out of his great wisdom, he put you and me in Christ so that when Christ was crucified, what happened to you and me? Or according to Romans 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified. And so, my brothers and sisters, in this gospel of Paul is not ashamed of, this gospel that he preached everywhere he went, it was a gospel that included the freedom from sin. You don't have to be victimized by your old sinful nature anymore. 
Now, I don't know how you respond to that, but I think that's good news, my brothers and sisters. And maybe there are a few here tonight who need to hear this gospel, that God has provided a way for you to stop sinning. I agree. It's a very unusual way. You know how? Execution by crucifixion. That's the way. Only dead sinners don't sin. I want to tell you a story that happened to me a number of years ago. We were having a Bible study. And uh, it was in the morning. It was mostly sisters who were coming to this Bible study. And we were studying Romans. And uh, there was this, young, this uh, lady from Ireland. And she was coming. She was a Roman Catholic. And, uh, she, you know, she was just learning uh, this whole matter of studying the Bible and so on and so forth. And I noticed that one, one of our meetings, she came in and she, she looked very nervous. She was jittery and just couldn't get at peace and rest. And, and so we finished the Bible study and she came to me and, she, and very carefully she said, Ernie, I had a dream about you. So I said, okay, you can tell me the dream. He said, she said, I dreamed that you died. <laughs> and I came to the wake, you know, the wake, the, the funeral. And you know, sometimes in dreams, they do funny things happen. And so she said, I was walking down these, these uh, stone steps and I looked over and there you were in the coffin, but you were still moving. I said, yeah, that's me, that's me. <laughs> But this is some of us, brothers and sisters, because we haven't moved from Romans 6 to Romans 6.11, 6.6 to 6.11. Because as a steward of the gospel, you need to put into work the reality, into practice, the reality of what God accomplished when, our, when his son was crucified. Therefore, reckon yourself to be dead unto sin and alive unto God. Now, if you don't do that, then you don't experience the reality of having been crucified. You can have the doctrine, but it's when husband and wife get in an argument with one another or some other conflict arises in your life. And you have the opportunity to put your foot on the throat of that old man and keep him there until he stops breathing. And it's, you're sure he's dead. <laughs> I remember our brother Lance telling us a story about a brother who was uh, studying this whole thing and thinking maybe he had entered into it. And he said, I thought I had died, but I discovered I only fainted. <laughs> so brothers and sisters, this matter of being a steward means that we have to take the truth that the Holy Spirit speaks to us and by his grace, put into practice. You need to reckon that old man to be dead. How can you do that? Because the same Bible that tells you that Jesus died for you also tells you that you died in him. The same Bible, just three chapters later. And almost every one of us in this place to know that Jesus died for me. Yes? But do you know that you died in him? Hey, well, you need to know. This is being a steward. And then Galatians 2.20. All of, I hope all of you have memorized. Shame on you if you have not memorized this verse. I have been crucified with Christ. And nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, 
who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel too. Not just, uh, I need to be very careful because I know there's not an agreement on all of this. But it seems to me that there's, there's a difference between Romans 6.6 6 and Galatians 2.20. There Paul is talking about the old man. Where here, he's talking about the I, the ego, the self-life. Now the reason why I think there's a difference is because, my dear brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus did not have an old man but he had a self-life. He had a self. And he died to that self. And he said, if any man wants to be my disciple, he has to learn to say no to that self. So, brothers and sisters, part of our being stewards of the gospel is that we understand that we need to deny, to say no, to consider crucified, dead, our self-life. And know that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Oh, what this would do to the lives of some of us here tonight. You are trying so hard to be a good Christian. You're trying to live the Christian life. You're so eager, so desirous. But I tell you what, you're going to discover it doesn't work. Can I put it this way to us? There's only one person in the universe who can live the Christian life, and it's Christ. And he, wants, he lived it in Jesus of Nazareth, and now he wants to live it in you. But you have to learn to say no to the old, to that self-life, and let it, not have, let it have its domination over us. And then in Galatians 6, Paul says, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is a real problem we're facing right now. How much are you concerned about what's happening economically, politically, militarily in the world? We have to be careful we don't allow ourselves to become so occupied with these things. Oh, it's not that they're not serious, but brothers and sisters... <laughs> There's many ways the world can come and begin to influence the way we think, our conduct, our actions. Some of us, maybe even some of us here, have had some sleepless nights the last few weeks because of what's happening on Wall Street. Hmm? Well, now's the time for you to deal with those things and get cut free, to be crucified to them, to be dead to it. And focus your attention in living in the reality of the kingdom of God. Now, brothers and sisters, I know my time is already gone, but I want to at least mention these last two things. Paul says, I endure all things. Let's look at it in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 10. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Brothers and sisters, I don't mean for one moment to suggest to us 
that we need to go out looking for suffering, things to endure. You don't need to go looking for them. They'll come looking for you. <laughs> they will come. The question is, do you have an attitude to get through? See, what do you think it means to be an overcomer? Hmm? It means that you detour all the problems? You try to go around them, around them, over top of them? No, brothers and sisters, that when the, when the difficulty comes, the thing that causes us to suffer arrives. We discover a way through. Our attitude is, I don't want to escape, I want to find a way through. And you discover, again, it's the grace of God that gets us through. But if you have this in your mind, that you want to avoid the difficulties, you want to somehow have a life in Christ as a believer that doesn't include any difficulties, no problems, no suffering, it's being unreal. You're living in a, in a dream world. You got your head in the clouds. Our Lord Jesus told us right from the very beginning, this is part of our experience. If you're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. Why? Because we live in a hostile world. Brothers and sisters, please understand tonight, the world doesn't love Jesus any more tonight than it does when they crucified him. And you and I are to be there as stewards of this gospel, stewards of the good news, stewards that are proclaiming and living out the reality of this, and it's going to encounter difficulty, hostility. And you need to have your mind set that by the grace of God, I'm going to go through. I'm going to be an overcomer because the grace is sufficiently there for us to do it. So you remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, I fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Brother and sister, please, look at me tonight. Do you know God's grace can give you the same testimony at the end of your life? This is not just for Paul. This is for you and for me. That this can be our test, not with pride, but boasting that by the grace of God, I fought a good fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. And now, a crown of righteousness awaits me. But you know, my dear brothers and sisters, when we stand before our Lord and we have this testimony, it will be absolutely clear that the only reason we are there and have that testimony is because we've discovered something about the sufficiency of the grace of God. Paul wasn't saying, by my own strength, by my own ingenuity. No. For me to live as Christ would have been his explanation. Now, I know I always do this. I leave some of the important things to the end and then we don't have time to fellowship about them. But I want us to notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 
And this maybe will be something that will stir your heart to go and consider this in other places in the scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13. I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. Now, there are many other examples of what I'm talking about here. But brothers and sisters, an attitude that we need to have if we're going to become good stewards is how important our relationships are with other brothers and sisters. Have you ever taken your New Testament and gone through and looked up the one another's that are mentioned there? Our Lord Jesus says we are to love one another. Peter talks about serving one another. Paul talks about submitting to one another, encouraging one another, correcting one another, exhorting one another. We could go on and on. But brothers and sisters, you don't exhort. I'm sorry. You have to exhort a person. And that means you have to have a relationship. And I have to say again this evening that the way we have conducted our life together as the body of Christ has not promoted these kind of relationships. We have been satisfied to have meetings for an hour, hour and a half, do what we do, and go home, and sometimes we never see any of the brothers and sisters again until the next meeting. Now, I want to ask us honestly, do you think that that can produce the kind of relationships that we need to have as members of the body? I don't think so. But my brothers and sisters, my heart has been so impressed I mentioned it last night. More than 70 names Paul mentions in his letters of specific individuals that he had relationship with. And you know what he calls them? He calls some of them, my beloved. He says to Timothy, my beloved son. Not just my son, but beloved son. That they had spent so much time together that can I put it this way? They fell in love with one another in the Lord. It's different to be loved and to be loved. To be loved means there's something special. And brothers and sisters, may I strongly encourage us in this matter of stewardship that we treasure the people that God put in our lives, that we learn how to relate to them, we learn how to serve them, we learn how to speak correction when it's necessary. I tell you what, some of us have not grown the way we should have grown because we were not open to receive the correction from our brothers and sisters. We are so proud. You know, we humbly give testimony. Oh, I'm such a horrible person. I, I make so many mistakes. I, I do so many foolish things. But then when you tell them about it, they get all upset. <laughs> but we should have the kind of relationships where we can walk into one another's lives. Not that we're being critical but that we are being eyes for them that they don't have. We all have blind spots, my brothers and sisters. And for the Lord to put some people in our life who deeply, deeply love us and love us enough to come and say, can we have some fellowship about some things I see going on in your life? I say to every one of you tonight, my dear brothers and sisters, I need you. 
I need for you. If you feel like I'm doing something or saying something that is dishonoring to my Lord or in any way interfering with his work, you please come to me and share it with me. We need to have these kind of relationships. And I plead with you, when you go back home, ask the Lord to put some people like this in your life and build relationships. Pay the price. Yes, it's expensive. But it's worth it, my brothers and sisters. The great benefits that will come for you, but also for the body of Christ. It will, do, it will allow our Lord to do a fuller work of building his church. So, go and read some of the other statements that Paul makes. Bring Mark. Pick up Mark and bring him to me. Because <laughs> he is valuable to me in the ministry. Now, this is the same Mark that created problems back in Acts 14. But now, oh, brothers and sisters, how we need each other. Is this your attitude towards your brothers and sisters? doesn't change it if it's not. But brothers, if you have this attitude, then it'll put yourself in a place not just dependent on him as a head, but dependent on the other members of the body. Oh, my dear brothers and sisters, thank you for being patient. But may God apprehend our hearts. May our Lord, as our master, apprehend our hearts. And every one of us, without exception, respond to him. And let the Holy Spirit help us develop these attitudes in our hearts so that when we stand before him, he can honestly say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And you can be a part of this work of reigning with our Lord during the thousand years reign upon this earth. And it may be coming quicker than many of us think. Let's pray together. Lord, tonight we want to bless you from the depths of our heart. Lord, we were absolutely, totally disqualified to ever be one of your servants, one of your stewards. But out of your great sovereign love, you have loved us. You have provided a perfect salvation, a complete, so great a salvation that can bring us from the worst to becoming what is pleasing to you. And Lord, also, that by your grace, you can make us the kind of people who can be faithful to you in the work and responsibility that you put into our hands. Lord, we want to be very careful what we say because we don't want to say something that is not true. But you have loved us in such a way. If we're honest tonight, we have to say, Lord, we love you, and we want to be your bondservants. We want to learn how to serve you. Please, Lord, hear the cry of our heart and take us on and begin to teach us how we can become these good and faithful stewards. And we ask it in your name.